Thank you guys for coming. I have Bethany here. She is from the Ex Jehovah's Witness community. Uh, thanks for coming on. Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be on your channel. Yeah, no problem. So um, I understand that you're an ex Jehovah's Witness. I was wondering if you could give me a little bit of uh, information on your background. Like, tell me your story. Yeah, so um, I was born into and raised as one of Jehovah's Witnesses. My uh, father was an, has, had been an elder for decades since the arrangement was instituted. Um, and he was a Bethelite in the late sixties. So he did the full four year term and my, uh, mother, he met my mother in Brooklyn. She grew up, she grew up in Brooklyn and she, uh, she had been a pioneer also for decades. So they were very strong in what you would call the truth. Um, very zealous. And, uh, my mother, she just loved service. She loved helping others she, if there was a single parent family or somebody who was struggling in the congregation or an oddball in the congregation, it didn't matter. She, she had them over. She took a personal interest in everybody and just had a lot of compassion for people. And so that was, that was my mother. And, uh, so yeah, I grew up in a, a typical model family and we were active we were all at all the meetings. We were in service all the time. Um, so yeah, I had a pretty typical upbringing, but there were, there were some things about my upbringing that were not typical. <laughs> um, my, my mother specifically was, was really frustrated that there wasn't anything fun to do. Like Jehovah's witnesses don't celebrate holidays. So she got frustrated. You know, she's saying we don't do Christmas. We don't do birthdays. We don't do any of these things. And you know, from a scriptural standpoint, she thought, okay, that's fine, but what else do we have for kids? So she would get really frustrated, and she would throw parties for me and my little friends in the congregation and neighboring congregations. I had pool parties, and we went to the movies, and she if she thought about the teenagers, and if there were single people. She used to say things like, you know, they should have mixers for all the single people so they can, like, get together and, like, meet, meet each other. She was always trying to think of things to do that were fun. And um, so, so that's a pretty active social life then. Oh, yeah. Okay. Basically, primarily in the Jehovah's Witness community, right? There wasn't any like worldly um, association so much. No, they didn't. They didn't say anything derogatory about other people. It wasn't like, oh, they're horrible worldly people right. or anything. But yeah, it was definitely, you know, she was trying to create a tight knit witness community. Okay. Yes, absolutely. Okay, interesting. So what happened next? So you're growing up and your mom is kind of growing this tight-knit community of, of Jehovah's Witnesses, trying to give you guys an active social life, which I would view as a good thing generally, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I had a great childhood. People used to ask me like, oh, you poor thing. You didn't, you know, my, my teachers and classmates, you poor thing. You don't celebrate birthdays or Christmas. And I was actually kind of spoiled. My parents got me gifts, little gifts throughout the year. And mm. uh, they were good to me. And I had lots of good memories. And I know that other witness kids did not have that experience. So I, to this day, have not forgotten about that. So that was that was one way that we were not typical. She was constantly doing things like that. When my other little friends in the congregation, their parents were more strict and were not doing fun things like that. 
So you get to your teen years and you, you know, you're, you're turning 18. At what point was it that you kind of started to realize that it's not true? <laughs> okay. So I, I was never, so I had a good childhood that I will always admit to, but I was never happy as a Jehovah's witness. I was always more creative. I was into the arts and you know, I'm raised in this religion. It's all I know. My parents are extremely sincere. They're good people. And I knew of other really good people. And I saw this, you know, quote, worldwide brotherhood. But part of that was half of my brain that saw that part. But the other half of my brain is saying, there's something that feels very contrived. And I don't know, disingenuous or fake about, about all this. And I, I don't mean that as a slam. It just felt like every, I was constantly being told that I was happy. We're Jehovah's happy people. Happy, happy, happy. Yep. So I'm thinking, why don't I feel happy? This doesn't feel right. It, I never felt settled in the religion. It felt like, you know, I was raised as anything else. You know, take a Baptist kid or a Catholic kid or whatever. And, you know, put them in that situation where that's all they know and they feel kind of suffocated by it. So personally... I was never happy as one, even though I had some good memories and met some good people, it didn't feel like it was my own. I don't feel like I really accepted the faith entirely on my own because, you know, as anybody who's, who grew up as a Jehovah's Witness knows, there's no exploration of other belief systems. So how would I know if I maybe, maybe I connect more to Catholicism or, you know, sure. to, to the Jewish faith or whatever. So at 18, um, around that time, I mean, I got baptized at 15 cause it was expected of me. And because I thought I was doing the right thing for God and my parents and humanity, you know, it's just a lot of pressure. And, um, but I was really unhappy and it, it, it got really bad. I had a nervous breakdown at 18 and, uh, just felt horribly conflicted and I wanted to leave, but because of Jehovah's witnesses shunning policy, I stayed. And you know, you were tossed out at 18. I was. If I'm, yeah, that's brutal. You're so green. You're a baby in right. witness, <laughs> you know, in witness world, you know, like out in the world, as they call it, you know, when you're 18, you, you have some experience probably under your belt. And even then you're still green. But as a witness, it was just terrifying to think that if I stood up for, for how I really felt that I would be tossed out or I'd be rejected emotionally or financially. It was terrifying. So I, I stayed with it. And basically to answer your question, even though there were things that were off, not only was I not happy, but there were things about the teachings that didn't make sense. And that felt kind of off. I, I felt like some people use the expression, if they're not really in a good marriage, they'll say, uh, you know, we're trying to make it work. Yeah. That's how I felt as a witness. I felt like I'm just trying to make this work. It's the truth. Where am I to go to, Lord? You know, that was kind of the, my sentiment. So I, I, throughout my 20s, I just tried to make it work and stuff down those doubts and my real identity. So Right. Very fascinating. Okay. So it was like your, your mid-20s, roughly, then, is what you're saying, where, where you were kind of doubting it. You didn't really feel like it was completely true, but you were sticking with it. Is that a fair assessment of it? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, and I hadn't I hadn't woken up in any sense or done any research at all. I just I just always had that nagging feeling that something's not right here. But I stuck with it because I love my parents and I, you know, I thought I was pleasing God and you know that kind of thing. Right. Okay. So when I was, I think I was 
uh, I don't know, 13 or 14, somewhere in there, when I ended up getting baptized. And from that moment on, I was fully committed to the religion, just just dove in headfirst until I turned about 17 or 18. And then I started kind of backing off a little bit. But it sounds to me like you had some level of, of apprehension to embrace it fully. So at, at what point was it that you, like what age were you when you realized that, you know, this is just not true, period? <laughs> that wasn't until fairly recently. That wasn't until 2017. Um, I had some I had some adventures in between there throughout my 20s. But yeah, in 2017, uh I officially, I officially woke up, as they say, and there was a whole process to that. Do you want to talk about what the catalyst was, the thing that pushed you over the edge and, and made you just back away from it? So that whole feeling of I'm trying to make this work, in my, throughout my 20s, part of making it work was traveling. So, and, and kind of to go back just a little bit, my mother also pushed me to go to college which was a big deal. She didn't push me to pioneer. She said she she said she would support me no matter what, whatever I wanted to do. But they didn't push me to pioneer. But my mother, she's from Brooklyn. She has this like Brooklyn accent. She used to point at me and she say, say, "You're going to college. You're going to college. You're going to get a scholarship and you're going to go." So she was like really adamant about it, and that's what I did. So I got a scholarship for the first two years, and I just went to a local community college, and I. Uh, I saved up. First of all, I got a scholarship, didn't have to pay a cent for school, which was really cool. And I went completely for free and they would give me book checks each semester uh, for $600. And I would just get the cheapest, most beat up book that had highlighter and it was completely screwed up because college textbooks are like 150, 200 bucks per book. So I saved up by getting the cheapest books and I saved up for three or four semesters and ended up going to Europe on book money. So that was the beginning. And I worked, I worked also through my twenties, but that, that was the, that kickstarted it. And so as you know, being a single sister, I was bored out of my mind staying in one place. I wanted to meet other people and broaden my horizons. So I traveled to Seattle, Chicago, New York, Holland, Belgium, Austin, just all over the place and just made friends. That was my way of, I was not happy as a witness, but I'm thinking this is supposed to be my spiritual family. These are the people I'm supposed to be close to, you know, I'm not supposed to go in the world for friends and for association. So that's how I tried to build myself up emotionally and kind of placate or reduce the cognitive dissonance that I was having. I'm thinking, well, if I just keep myself so busy with interesting people and fun people, maybe it won't be so bad. So when I went, okay, so here's the thing. So I met a lot of cool people along the way and really, really good people. And then, but the problem was <laughs> I, I was really struggling. I, like I, I mentioned, I was more artistic. I painted, I was a dancer. I danced for 10 years and I wasn't like a prima ballerina or anything like that, but I was an active dancer and that's where my heart was, but I couldn't say that. I couldn't say, I don't want to be a witness. This is what I want to do. This is what I want to pursue. So um, I felt like I was constantly downplaying my real identity and, and just constantly living a lie, being something that I wasn't. And so I went to, 
I made friends and met some cool people along the way, but I went to Seattle the first time and met an awesome couple. They were in their forties and he was an elder and she was a pioneer, but they didn't feel like super strict or anything. They were really relaxed and loved them. They took me in like I was a relative. They, they were like family to me. And so I stayed with them for the first visit and I met a lot of great people from the congregation uh, during that first visit. That was a wonderful experience. Um, but the, and then again, I said, I traveled to all these places, but when I came back and this is kind of coming around to answer your question, when I visited Seattle for the second time, I don't know what was in the water, but that was a really discouraging trip. The couple was going to be staying in another country for foreign language. And they asked me if I wanted to house sit for them for three months. I grew up in Texas and Texas is the bowels of hell in the summer. It's super hot. It's like 105 degrees. And it, in, in Seattle in the summer, it's drizzly and cool and overcast. And they knew that I loved that weather. And so they're like, Hey, you know, you, your job is flexible. We love you. We trust you. If you want to come house sit for us the, for the whole summer, you know, that's totally cool. Cause we're going to be gone. I was like, Oh my God, this is awesome. So I went to Seattle and I don't know the second time around it was, I don't know if there was a shift in the congregation or what drama was going on, but there was some new people, some new faces from the first time I had visited and everybody's attitude I'll just say it. Everybody's attitude was really funky. <laughs> and I'm thinking these are supposed to be my, my friends or my spiritual family. So I go, I spend, I'm spending all my time at meetings and service. Mind you, I'm away from my home congregation. You know, I could be, you know, I'm in my mid twenties, I could be doing my own thing and getting into all kinds of shenanigans, you know, shenanigans, but I'm a good JW. I always had been. And so I was trying to be active and meet people. So I was in service and going to meetings constantly because that's where everybody was. Um, and just had several really discouraging run-ins with, uh, with sisters. It was the more catty toxic side of the organization that people don't like to talk about. So the coordinator's wife, she, I don't know what her deal was, but in Seattle it's drizzly and cool. And, uh, a lot of the times, but it was a beautiful spring day when I was visiting one day I was going out in service and a beautiful spring day. And so all the sisters, even though it was like 59 degrees outside, all the sisters were freaking out and they were wearing like pretty spring dresses and sandals and, and getting really into the weather because the sun came out and people in Seattle like never see the sun. So, um, they were all, you know, doing their thing, dressing in those, in those outfits. And I remember like, it's just one of those things I was out in service and instead of saying, Oh, here's a single sister who's house sitting and, uh, you know, she's here alone. Let's kind of include her or, you know, be kind of welcoming. She, there's, there was a lull in the conversation in the service group and she turned to me and I had on combat boots and black tights, a black dress, and like a bomber jacket. That was my style. She turns to me and says in front of the whole group, oh, look at you, you look so silly. You look so silly in your silly boots. Look, you know, it's yeah. a beautiful day. Why are you wearing this silly outfit? And I was just, 
And I had enough self-esteem that it wasn't like, oh my God, you hurt me so bad. But I'm just thinking, really? Yeah. And there was moments like that constantly. Um, there was another sister who uh, who I I had met her on the first the first time to Seattle, and I saw her for the second time. And I said, hey, how you doing? And I gave her a hug. And she's like, oh, and she was kind of like a deer in the headlights. She says, you remember me? And I said, yeah, I, I met you the first time. And apparently somebody told me, another sister came to me like the next day and said that the sister that I had hugged went out in service in a car group and said to the car group, oh, like, cause my name had come up. She says, oh yeah. And she came up and she hugged me and it was really creepy. Oh, wow. And, and I was thinking, would you have preferred that I punched you in the face? Like, no. God, some people, I know, I know, I can tell you that there is a toxic element. I know that's true. And I've seen a lot of that toxic element kind of come out of Jehovah's Witnesses and, and kind of spread that, that kind of toxicity around the ex-Jehovah's Witness community a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, I haven't really been the victim of it too much, but I have seen it. So uh, I do know what you're talking about there. But go on, as you were saying. Sure. Yeah, no, basically. And, and there was, uh, there was another, there was, uh, there, there was just, there was moments like that without getting into too many, but there was just constant catty moments. And I was supposed to be there for three months. And eventually the toxicity got so bad. I ended up getting a ticket and flying home after three weeks and I didn't tell anybody. And before I had, uh, had left, I was standing on the front lawn and nobody, no Jehovah's Witness, nobody in the congregation. And again, I, there's people who are not malicious. They're just kind of thoughtless. Um, but generally speaking, nobody, nobody invited me over. And I'm not saying we have to be best friends and braid each other's hair, but like, you know, I'm here supposedly yeah. for three months. Nobody invited me over um, except for one sister. But that was that was another thing. She ended up being really rude as well. But besides that one time I was standing on the front lawn at this couple's house and the worldly neighbor across the street sees me and I was taking the dog out. They had a little dog and I was taking the dog out and the neighbor lady saw me across the street and she says, Hey, are you house sitting for so-and-so? And I said, yeah. And she says, well, you're welcome to come over and have a glass of wine with us. We'd love to have you. And I remember just feeling to circle back. I remember feeling really discouraged because I'm thinking, I've been here for three weeks with these people. And again, not all of them are bad or evil or malicious, right. but I'm, I've been here for three weeks. It takes the worldly neighbor lady across the street to invite me over for a glass of wine. That was, so talk about cognitive dissonance. I'm thinking this, this is supposed to be God's true organization. These are supposed to be my, my friends and my spiritual family. And I've never felt so alone. So that was, that was a struggle to say no to her because she was worldly. Um, so yeah, stuff like that, you know, that was, that was very discouraging and I already felt like I didn't want to be there. So it was, it was rough, but there were some good people along the way, but definitely those, those individuals were very toxic. Right. But anyway, so I, I got married in 2015 and my husband was a zealous witness, what you would consider a zealous witness. And, uh, you know, devoted JW and he and I were very happy, but we were both becoming increasingly depressed with the religion and having our doubts. And this was around 2016. And the difference was he started to entertain his doubts and do research. 
And that's where everything <laughs> took a turn. He started to do research and I, I didn't, I, how do I say this? It was too scary and too exciting. If that makes sense. It was like, I never wanted to be this thing. I, my, I felt like I've been, you know, going week after week, my whole life to meetings and service, being bored out of my mind, listening to the same information being regurgitated and recycled. And I'm collapsing in on myself like a dying sun. Like, I don't want to be here, but I, I, I feel like I'm, this is what I have to do because it's, it's like the an truth. obligation. Yes, an obligation. Yeah. But also, but I'm thinking, you know, but it, but this is the truth, right? You know, like there's, I wouldn't be doing it if it wasn't the truth. So the idea that it possibly wasn't the truth was terrifying and possibly very liberating. So he started to do research and he started to wake up. And I, 2017, basically in a nutshell, 2017, I was horribly conflicted. I was physically ill. I was emotionally ill. I, I became inactive. I couldn't, I, there was an incident where I never stepped foot back in a hall again. I remember the last meeting I went to, but I wasn't allowing myself to look at apostate literature or anything like that. But when, okay, so the thing that the last straw was discovering you know, my husband, he didn't push it on me. He didn't push what he was reading or what he was discovering on me. But when he brought up the Australian Royal Commission, that was that was the nail in the proverbial coffin. That was when, the, kind of the thing that got you to realize that, that witnesses were not what you hoped or thought they were? This is not a benign organization. Right. No, no. If you can't even protect the youngest among you, that was when a switch went off in my brain. So it wasn't, it wasn't so much doctrinal. Other things, doctrinal things came after that. But I thought, you can't even protect children. That was, that was shocking to me. And then that's when everything opened up. The floodgates opened up and I started doing research. And right. then I, I came to the conclusion, this can't, this can't be God's true organization. It can't. Right. That's good to hear. Uh, I'm, I'm really glad to hear that you ended up finding your way out as a result of that. In fact, I know a lot of people, I mean, uh, people I've worked with in the past and everything who have left as a result of the two witness rule or the, you, you know, the Australian Royal Commission, any number of issues linked to this sexual abuse situation with witnesses. So, and it's really getting a lot of coverage. So I'm honestly glad to see that, that the coverage is out there, that it's getting mainstream coverage, you know, with, uh, Leah Remini's show and, and all over the news and everything. So, and it, it's, it's painful. It's, but anyway, so when that happened, everything opened up. I started, I started researching. I started to look at JW survey, JW facts. Um, I, I saw your channel right. in, the, in the beginning. And then, so I, the next part was I had to, my husband and I officially disassociated New Year's Eve of 2017, we dropped our letters in the mail and I had to tell my parents mm. and, you know, I, how did it go? <laughs> well, you know, they, they've been dedicated their whole life to it. Uh, they were obviously devastated and crushed. The thing is I sent them a snail mail letter because my whole life I had been dropping hints that I wasn't happy, but when you, when you don't want to believe it, when you don't want to believe that you've raised your child in something that could either be wrong or that's made them unhappy, that's, 
the denial sets in. So I knew I couldn't talk to them uh, face to face. I had tried to have conversations over the years, but it's incredibly painful to talk about that with your parents without some kind of repercussions. So I sent them a letter and I said, I love you. You know, you're always welcome in my life, but I disassociated for these reasons. And I mentioned the child uh, sexual abuse, the systemic chronic sexual abuse problem, you know, the domestic violence, the shunning policy, the whole, the whole thing. And, um, you know, they, they obviously were not uh, happy. They were devastated. Um, but I refused. I told myself from the very beginning, and this is just me personally, cause I know everybody's path is different, but, um, and dynamic with their family and their parents are different. But I told myself from the beginning, I refuse to grovel for love and respect. I refuse to beg you to be in my life and to love me. Um, this is what's going on. I don't hate witnesses. I don't hate the Jehovah's Witnesses, but I do have a problem with the leadership and what they're doing. Right. This is right. this is really corrupt. And you know, you you know that it becomes a very emotional issue. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's it's not just a matter of facts and logic. So I didn't. I slammed them basically in the face with that, but it was just speaking facts. I can't. I can't align myself with this organization anymore. And so I know I devastated them and it was never, I, I never meant to hurt my parents, but I couldn't, I couldn't live a lie anymore. And so, yeah. Yeah. So, I, yeah. I understand. I know that sometimes describing this situation, describing the fact that I was kicked out when I was 18 or, 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 you know, your situation that just the, the, the facts of the situation don't always do it justice for how deeply it affects people. And I feel like it's really important to talk about these things so that, you know, the, the plethora of non ex Jehovah's witnesses that watch my channel, mm -hmm. um, and, and atheists and, and whoever else watch it so that they understand what's really happening and how deeply it affects people, you know? So I definitely understand where you're coming from. So your your parents didn't weren't super receptive to your letter, I guess. Oh, they they absolutely flipped out. I it, who wouldn't? Who takes that news? Right. You know, I was I, and I was the golden child of the family. I never messed up. I was you know an active, faithful witness my whole life. So that was absolutely shocking to them. But if they were really listening to me my whole life, it wouldn't have been as shocking if you catch what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, they, they obviously were not happy. They're devastated and crushed, but it, it is what it is. I didn't do it to hurt them. It's not about them. It's just about the situation. And they're always welcome in my life. I love them very much, but I just, I couldn't live a lie anymore. And I couldn't align myself with this, with this organization. And again, I have nothing against Jehovah's Witnesses as individuals. It's just intense mind control. It's yep. intense um, behavior control. And, you know, they have to live by their conscience and I have to live by mine. Yeah, I totally agree with that. A hundred percent. I, you know, I made a video forever ago where I was talking about how I went in service with the circuit overseer one time when he came to visit the congregation. Mm -hmm. I think I was like 10 years old or something. And these people release dogs on us. Like, you, you can't do that to kids, you know? And that's okay. why, that is why I don't... I remember that, that yeah. story. 
Yeah. I, I don't mistreat Jehovah's Witnesses. I have nothing against Jehovah's Witnesses. If okay. anything, I view them as victims in this situation, you know. But Absolutely. something I noticed you were saying earlier was, you, you know, they have to live their conscience, you have to live yours. That is very true. Um, and I, I've struggled a lot with the accepting that they, look, we are victims in this situation. You and I are. The fact that this organization is telling our family members to not talk to us like this is way over the top wrong. But I struggled for a long time with blaming, putting the blame where it belongs with the Watchtower Society and not with my mom, for example. It's really hard to 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 accept who holds that blame and realize that so i definitely understand the you know the emotions flying around around that right. that subject right yeah and so i i was basically a recluse for um or hermit or whatever for like a year and then i thought to myself i am benefiting from these brave people these brave activists on youtube you know, I think of Cedars and, and yeah. Fifth and you and yeah. XCW Critical Thinker, all these people. And I I wanted to add my voice to the movement. And I the shunning policy, there's so many things. Anybody who's left the Jehovah's Witnesses knows it's never one thing. There's so many things. <laughs> but the shunning policy is precisely what kept me from leaving at 18. And I remember how I, it's like it's like I'm forgiving my 18-year-old self. And I, I don't, maybe this sounds naive or far reaching or overreaching or whatever the term is, but I created the channel, my channel stopped the shunning and I wrote alive and well, a healing journal for the shunned. Cause I don't want to give watchtower the satisfaction of claiming more lives. And I'm, again, I, I know that that's probably an oversimplified statement because it's, it's a major problem and people kill themselves over it. But I'm thinking if I can do something in my limited capacity to help empower people to know that they have value, you have value. Don't let Watchtower change the entire traject trajectory of your life. They're, yeah, they screwed with it, but don't let them tell you you're not enough or that you're worthy of death or that you should be silenced. And right. yeah, I just, I didn't want to give them the satisfaction I want people to be able to, in some, to some degree, become survivors and even thrivers. This, this whole generation of people that have lost their parents. Yeah, and know? their family members and their friends and everything. It, it's devastating. I agree. So let me ask you this. I have two more questions for you. Uh, where can we find you outside? Like, So you have a YouTube channel, right? Right. So Stop what was the, the name of that again? It's Stop the Shunning, just one Okay, stop the shunning. Yeah. And d you said you wrote a book also? Yeah, I wrote it. I wrote it like a journal. It's called Alive and Well, a healing journal for the shunned. And it has several self-empowerment exercises in it. Hmm. Um, I'm not a doctor. I'm currently in school for psychology, but I'm not licensed, you know, a licensed professional counselor. I don't offer any medical advice. I highly suggest everyone who's struggling emotionally or mentally, you know, with with the fallout from this situation that they go see a therapist, a qualified therapist. But this was my passion project. I've, I've always loved to write and I wanted to provide some exercise, some exercises that would bolster people up. 
that that was simple that wasn't like a 400 page book you know some right. medical medical book and it's on barnesandnoble.com and uh it's like five dollars <laughs> it's like you know. very cool okay uh, yeah check that out and yeah. the other question i had for you was was there a, a, a final statement that you wanted to give if every jehovah's witness in the world could hear you right now is there any message you'd want to give them yes um not only not only the excellent advice of doing your own research i you know i hear people say all the time do research absolutely do research but also i would say become comfortable with being disliked become become even if you're not comfortable practice maybe radical acceptance accept that you're going to lose people if you wake up be okay with not being liked be okay with letting that reputation that you built up either as an elder or a ministerial servant or a pioneer, let that perfectionism and that reputation go. The truth, the truth about the truth is far more important. Life on the other side is far more important. Being your authentic self is more important, you know? And I, and again, I know that's, that's oversimplified because people have family members in and they have, tightly, you know, woven, you know, uh, situations where they have a lot of family members and friends in the organization. They're afraid to leave or they can't leave or their business is tied up with JWs. So I'm not making any oversimplified statements, but become comfortable with not being liked and not, you know, you left and then it's, Oh, I heard so-and-so became apostate or uh, people are going to think this about me or that about me. Let it go. It doesn't matter. This is your life. That's you know? a fair statement. And I think that your, you know, your reputation on the inside is so precarious anyways. You have to do so much to keep it up that you should become comfortable with it anyways. Just because, uh, you know, chances are eventually something's going to happen and people right. are going to view you a certain way. I mean, it's a gossip chain. You can't. It's a gossip chain. They don't matter. And, and, just, and just another thing, and, and, and meaning... The opinions don't matter. I'm not saying they're necessarily bad people, right. but also just one last piece of advice. Don't harbor any fantasies that people are going to remain your friends. Right. I'll, I'll be shocked, shocked, <laughs> you know, if a lot of people come back and be like, oh, I told them it wasn't the truth and I still have best friends in the organization. Get over that. They're not, they're not your friends and it's not because they're bad people necessarily. They're just the under the control. They're under the control of watchtowers. So prepare yourself emotionally for losing people, losing friends and losing that reputation. It doesn't matter. Like you said, you right? Know. Yeah, I can agree with that. Well, I appreciate you coming on and talking to me. It's been really interesting and maybe I'll talk to you again sometime. Okay. Absolutely. Thanks so much. All right.